The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight, and a little poignant for me, I'll be leaving, I'll be gone teaching on both coasts for almost all of six weeks. I'll come back a few times in the middle of the week, but I won't be here for Sunday night. Um, So wishing everyone well and that feeling like we still have, I guess, I'm guessing most people do when we leave home. And just appreciating how love moves. Like, why wouldn't we want to be a good student of love? And uh, those of you who've been coming know that for the last, I don't know, a couple of months at least, it seems, I've been giving talks. I think Shelley has also. We've been giving talks about loving kindness and all of its various expressions. And it makes so much sense to me, and I, I'm guessing for most of you, that why not become a good student of love? Like the actual arising of love, the actual rising of compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. These are the traditional Buddhist flavors of love that are talked about in the tradition. I mean, it just makes so much sense that we'd want to pay attention, like what are the causes for those states of love to arise? What are the causes for them to not show up? You know, what gets in the way? How can I as a practitioner, participate, strengthen, nurture like we would a garden so those wholesome emotions or wholesome attitudes of loving kindness and compassion and equanimity. How can I abandon the tendencies, the dispositions of my mind that sort of undermine the momentum or undermine the expression of love? You know, those ancient habits that we have, like uh, I think, I don't know, maybe it was Joseph Goldstein who talks about the mythologies of isolation. You know, we have like these beliefs in separation, these beliefs in being alone, being apart, nobody loves me, nobody cares, nobody gets me. I mean, and the thing is, we've got like a good lawyer, we've got our evidence to support these beliefs. But that evidence is very selective. So part of uncovering the capacity of this mind, this heart to love, is like being strategic about what evidence we pay attention to. Like, did we notice what happened in our mind today when we felt the sunshine on our cheek, for example? Oh, just a simple, ordinary experience of pleasure Right? I'm not expecting that to have been a mystical experience or anything, but just an ordinary experience of something pleasurable, something beautiful, can remind the heart, like, I don't have to be afraid to be generous. It's as if the heart's saying that. I don't have to be afraid to love. I don't have to be afraid to care. This is from, I think it's, even though it's been around now for 20 years or more, Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. 
It's a great subtitle, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Like, oh, it's not about, because this is like from kindergarten or, you know, when we were three or four. No, you, you're supposed to love your neighbor, you know. It's like a chore. Oh, I've got to love my siblings. I had six siblings. That was a lot. That was a high expectation. Because <laughs> they, were, they were imperfect, you know. Just like our parents and our neighbors. So it, it feels like a real chore, but the revolutionary art of happiness, it's not, we don't love because we're supposed to. We love because it's enlivening, it's liberating. Kindness is liberating. I mentioned that this, this morning in the talk, um, the Sunday morning talk, that in the Buddhist tradition, if you want a peek at what it's like to be an awakened being, like as an ordinary, not fully awake human being, right? I put myself in that camp. So I wonder, what's it like to be a Buddha or an awakened being or a saint or somebody who has uprooted greed and aversion from their heart, the tendency to be greedy, the tendency to be afraid and angry? What's that like? And the Buddha would say, in the tradition we say, that you get a taste of that any moment when uh, there's a purity of love. Because you know those ordinary moments when the heart is open and generous and kind or compassionate, appreciative, there's no greed or aversion operating in that moment, right? Or those moments in the mind. Now if we also have some real curiosity, some real presence in those moments, we'll notice that this heart is empty of greed and aversion, empty of the defiling um, oppressive tendencies of greed and aversion. Oh, this is the taste of freedom. This is what it's like to be operating, to be engaged without not coming out of fear, not coming out of need. So then that's why we use it's like the the phrase the generous heart kind of shifts the orientation. Because our normal orientation is like, what about me? Like even when we're being kind, it's like this sort of operation, like I'll be kind and you'll be kind and we'll have this sort of pack, we'll be kind together. But the generosity is sort of going the other direction. It's like we're giving it away. We're giving love away. Because it's healing, it's liberating to give the love away. It's not because we expect something back. If something comes back, great. But you know what? This is sort of shocking. And I bet most of us have been learning this in different ways, of course, to different degrees. But it's really shocking that we can't actually feed on the love from others. What actually is nutritious as a living being, as a feeling being, as a sentient being, what's actually brings us alive and is protecting is giving everything away. Not like collecting your love. You love me? Good, I'll put it in the bank. What we put in the bank, like what really um, becomes our protection, our safety, 
is the love we can give, the joy we can give, the equanimity we can abide with, the compassionate engagement, the fearless and sometimes fierce compassionate engagement. It's that giving that protects us that's, in a sense, the money in the bank, not what we collect. It's kind of like icing on the cake when people love us or appreciate us or good things happen. But we can't really do anything with it except let it be what it is. People are really loving. People are really appreciative of me. Good things are happening to me. I got the job. I got the promotion. The cat wants to sit on my lap. My digestion's working well today. You know, these sort of ordinary good things that happen our way. Um, there's something, we don't want to be afraid of good things happening, but we also don't want to imagine that it's anything to build a life on. Because whatever comes can go. Right? So what we build our life on, the path is really the path of generosity. Because there isn't any moment you can imagine that you couldn't be generous. Some of you have read, I'm sure, some of the, um, I'm forgetting her name, Eddie. Anybody? uh, She was in the Holocaust. They found some of her diaries. It begins with an H, her last name. I'm sorry, I can't remember now. But they've been recently published, maybe in the last 10 years, her diaries. And she... uh, I don't know if it was in Amsterdam, but somewhere in the Netherlands during the war and then eventually ended up in one of the concentration camps and died. But even in that horrific setting, there, was way, there were ways for her to be generous, to live in a generous way with her love. No one can take that away, that compa- the generosity of compassion or kindness or whatever, because... The generous heart, it can express itself in any conditions. It isn't dependent on favorable or particular conditions. The goodness of the heart doesn't depend on anything. And that's why it's a refuge, and that's why it's associated with the flavor of liberation. right? Because the Buddha points, the whole reason he taught, What he uncovered from studying his own heart was a happiness that wasn't conditioned. So that's why in the tradition we talk about awakening or the liberation as an unconditioned happiness. It's not a happiness that depends on any particular conditions. And in ordinary moments of love, you see a bunch of robins singing their hearts out in the morning, you know, and you feel your heart, that sort of natural generosity of appreciating the call, or you see a dead squirrel that was hit by a car, and there's that natural generosity of compassion, or even, you know, in some ways, more tugging on the compassionate heart, that squirrel's not dead yet, right? And it's sitting there. And instead of just feeling helpless and getting tight about it, it's like you let your heart break. Oh, yeah. This is how it is when we build a bunch of roads in the squirrel's territory, you know. Sometimes they get hit, and sometimes they're in the throes of the dying process. And it hurts like this, 
and I'm not afraid to let my heart break with compassion. And if there was something to do, I would do it. Sometimes there is something to do. And if there's nothing I can do, I can witness this and practice not being afraid of my heart breaking. And that's a generous way to show up in that moment. Some of you have been with dying relatives, I'm assuming, right? And you can be generous in those moments, like not generously showing up, not afraid to be there, not afraid to feel what you're feeling. So we're sort of participating, because that's what that person who's dying has to do, to whatever degree they're able. They have to show up to what's happening, to the pain that's there, the confusion, the uncertainty, the mystery, maybe the beauty even. Who knows? And we can be there with them, being relaxed and open and unafraid and generously present, responding in a generous way, in a nimble way, not trying to manage or control how we're showing up. That's really the, you know, love, whatever the particular flavor, it isn't a strategy, it isn't like a plan. Oh, I'm going to see this person and I'm going to be generous in this way. Because a lot of times, especially when we know we're on the hot seat, like something's going on in our life, there's a divorce or a loss or some kind of intense thing going on in our life, it can seem from a more ordinary frame that I should have a skillful plan. But we might learn over, you know, after a lot of tension and a lot of contraction, we might learn that the only plan is to show up in a generous way, to be undefended and to allow the heart to respond. Out of the exposure of the moment, like really being present, then trust that the heart will find its way to respond, sometimes fiercely, sometimes by keeping quiet. And it's really hard to learn how to trust. So anyway, back to this section from Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. What would happen if we looked at ourselves and all of the different things that we see and did not judge any of it? We would see that some things bring pain, and others bring happiness. But there would be no denunciation, no guilt, no shame, no fear. How wondrous to see ourselves, others, and the world in that way. When we see only suffering and the end of suffering, then we feel compassion. Then we can act in energetic and forceful ways, but without the corrosive effects of aversion. A lot of times we think, you know, of love and compassion as being something weak or feeble. But this is really for us to check out. You know, when we think about, even in hindsight, like when we bring to mind moments in our lives where we felt, in hindsight, that, what do they say in sports situations, you know, that person didn't leave anything on the... What did they, on the field? Is that what they say? Didn't leave anything on the field? Like you give it all 
you got. And one of the phrases I've been repeating a lot in the talks is something I saw a while back in one of Pema Children's books where she was defining refuge in a Buddhist context as um, not holding back. It's one of the best definitions of refuge, right? Refuge is that capacity, like in our lives, to not hold back. Now, let's connect that with the essential teaching from the Buddha, which is being present, right? Being mindful, being exposed, being undefended, being open. So not holding back and that exposure and that being open, which allows for a way of participating, engaging, that's really coming out of the exposure. And that, I think, is a pretty good definition of love. And I've been talking about how love is really developing by keeping it in mind. We're developing the trust or the faith that the heart can include the moment. It's not the moment we want. It's almost never the moment, the particular conditions or circumstances that we want. But it is the moment we have, moment by moment, right? It's the only moment we can really let in. And any kind of not letting the moment in, not being awake, not being open, is our suffering, is our stress. It takes the only way we can protect ourselves from an ignorant point of view, which is like, I don't want to be here, is to get tight. It's still the moment. Nothing has changed except the tightness distracts us from our exposure. It doesn't really take us away from the moment. It just creates this veil of tightness, of suffering, so we forget what we're exposed to or we're distracted, unaware of what we're exposed to. So love is a much more dependable protection than contraction, the contraction of fear, the contraction of greed, the contraction of denial or distraction. This is, um, you know, this teaching on love, like a lot of the Buddhist teachings, it's really described as a natural arising. And this is an important switch. Like if you're going to be a good student of love as it, it, as it happens, as it moves in your heart and mind, you really have to start with this appreciation that we can't just make it happen. We have to understand it as a living natural force. And so this is how, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a really well-known translator. He's an American, but um, way back, became a Buddhist monk in Sri Lanka, spent many decades translating and practicing in Sri Lanka, and now he's quite old, and he's back in the States, um, still doing his work. He has lots of great stuff online. Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu just means a Buddhist monk, and Bodhi is his monastic name, which is related to the word Buddha, right? Bodhi just means awake. And he has a great little book you can get for free online, The Noble Eightfold Path, which is just his really succinct um, 
sort of translation and uh, commentary on the Buddha's Eightfold Path. And he's writing about right intention here. And it's interesting, intention, wholesome intention is really the active side of wisdom. A lot of people don't realize that the Buddha talking about right resolve or skillful resolve, skillful intention, skillful motivation, you could even say skillful thought, he really talks about it in terms of love. So wisdom is understanding that of karma, it matters. What we do, what we think, what we say matters. And also wisdom is this understanding that everything is nature, causes and conditions unfolding lawfully. So that's like one way to talk about Buddhist wisdom, like what happens when we pay attention. We see that intentions matter, right, and that it's a natural, lawful, conditional unfolding. And part of that lawful, conditional unfolding is what understanding is there, like not seeing that it's a lawful, natural unfolding is impactful, or seeing that it's a lawful in any moment, noticing the lawful unfolding is quite impactful. So the way it's described, these wholesome intentions, is the intention of generosity and letting go, renunciation. Right? Well, that's a kind of love. And the second one is the intention of goodwill. And the third one is the intention of harmlessness or compassion. Right, so what, like, because a lot of times we hear about Buddhist wisdom as it's all empty, it's all impersonal. But the active side of that is love, generosity, kindness, and compassion. That's the motivation that comes out of emptiness, comes out of seeing that it's just natural, it's just nature, natural causes and conditions unfolding. Any sort of nihilistic thought, oh, it doesn't matter, would only come from a self-centered, egoic point of view. Why bother? We're all going to die. That's a very self-centered point of view. It's not coming from a wisdom point of view. It's coming from a self point of view, a self-centered point of view. Some mind that's under the delusion of being apart from nature, whereas Using mindfulness, paying attention with real integrity, we see it's all nature. There's nothing apart from the natural, interdependent, lawful unfolding of all causes and conditions. Right? And then what comes out of that, the motive, the force that comes out of that, that would animate our lives, this is what the Buddha found, this is what I'm finding in my practice, to whatever degree I you know, have clarity, is generosity, kindness, and compassion. These are the three wholesome intentions that come out of the development of wisdom. So here's Bhikkhu Bodhi's commentary on this part of the Eightfold Path. He says, right intention like, um, oh, here it is. When we see how our own lives are pervaded by dukkha, suffering, or the unsatisfactoriness, the limitations of life, and how this unsatisfactoriness derives from craving, right? Like we want to control, we want to get, we want to get rid of. 
And that's what makes life so unsatisfactory. So here we are, we're a sentient and sensitive human being. We're awake, we feel, we see, we experience. And we always, almost always, are interpreting it in terms of like, if only I could get rid of this, if only I could get that. And as soon as we start having opinions, things get tight. Opinions from a self-centered point of view, right? Things get tight. All of a sudden, life is a burden because I need a quartz countertop in my kitchen, you know, and I need this. One of those instant pots. Some of you have them, right? Or this, or that, or a new body, a knee that doesn't hurt, or something like that, and on and on and on. And that is our that is the unsatisfactoriness, and that's what we call craving. So when we see how our lives are pervaded by the unsatisfactoriness and how this unsatisfactoriness derives from craving, wanting the moment to be different than it is, the mind inclines to renunciation, to abandoning craving and the objects to which it binds us. Right? We want to let go. It's so much easier to live a generous life because holding on to anything we see hurts. It's like, as Wynn and I, Wynn, my partner uh, and co-founder of Common Ground, one of our teachers here, when we can get her here, um, she's got a busy job teaching at McAllister College. But anyway, you know, we finally have entered the middle class. She was a dancer and choreographer for most of her adult life. Now she's got a real job. And uh, Common Ground, you know, I didn't have a real job until recently. You know, the last 10 years, I, I sort of entered the middle class as the center has grown and uh, generosity of the community has evolved over time. And um, so we actually have savings now, I often say. And it's like, all of a sudden, that's a burden, right? It's like, because a kind of stinginess has arisen that didn't exist before, because I didn't have anything to be stingy about. <laughs> now the, the question, well, how much should be given away? What should I do with that? How much do I need for retirement? You know, or should I just see how it plays out? So it's like, this is the... This is really the predicament of privilege, whatever the privilege might be. It's that there's a responsibility that comes with it, with affluence, with any kind of privilege. What am I going to do with this privilege? Am I going to pretend I don't have it, ignore it, or am I going to embrace it and sort of do something beautiful with it? How can, I, how can this exist in my life without being a burden? How can it be a thing of beauty in my life? how to participate freely and generously and beautifully with middle-class existence or the privilege of growing up as a white person in our society, a you know, middle-class, well-educated person in our society. What, do, what am I going to do with that? That's beautiful. How can I give that away? So first... Just paying attention to our life, the first beautiful motivation that arises is holding on hurts. I'm going to give it away. Whatever I do, I'm going to think about it as a generous way of participating. 
So even if you buy a beautiful hammock for your backyard, how can that purchase be felt and understood as an act of generosity, like caring for your body, so you're more well-rested, so you can really show up in the places in your life, or wh- so you can share it with your neighbors. Hey, when I'm not around, use my hammock, or whatever. Do you know what I mean? So that it's not like, if you use my hammock, it's going to wear out sooner. I don't want my neighbors to know it's there, because they're going to want to use it. So I'll put it out when I use it, and then I'm going to pack it and put it in the shed, so nobody sees it. Right? I mean, I... I can say things like that because I, I see that kind of stingy conditioning in my mind. I mean, I don't have a hammock, but about the, thing, <laughs> the things I do have. You know, it's like, this is mine. This is for me. And then we want to build a wall around it so that it will always be there. And then we realize we're suffering, right? Instead of it being a cause for happiness. And then... The Bhikkhu Bodhi goes on because then this first birth of renunciation, it continues to grow. It says, then when we apply the truths in an analogous, analogous way to other living beings, the contemplation nurtures the growth of goodwill, right, kindness, and compassion, harmlessness. We see that like ourselves, all other living beings want to be happy. And again, that like ourselves, they are subject to suffering. The consideration that all beings seek happiness causes thoughts of goodwill to arise. The loving wish that they be well, happy, and peaceful, the consideration that beings are exposed to suffering causes thoughts of harmlessness to arise. The compassionate wish that they be free from suffering. So when we have this generosity not holding and we realize that everybody else is in the same predicament, with the tendency to crave, right? We, we care about them. We have kindness to them. We empathize with them. I don't know if some of you saw that article. Richard, will you turn the other top light halfway up? It's just getting a little darker. I saw an article recently in the New York Times. Maybe some of you caught it about empathy. I think it was in the New York Times. And they've been doing more research on empathy because we normally think of empathy as being a really good attribute, like where somehow we can see ourselves in another person. But the newer research is uh, uh, having a better sense of how through human history, empathy has been used to keep the tribe together. And so a lot of the tribalism which you know has been used to justify all kinds of injustice and killing and you know just for you know you're either on the inside or you're on the outside and so that's often how like even in our political climate or with racism or other classism other kinds of difference we empathize with our group oh yeah i see myself in you right and but we don't empathize with the others whoever they might be however the mind might define others, right? Because they're in others, so then we specifically don't see ourselves in them because we've defined them in some way that makes them outside of the concept, the idea, the practice of empathy. So we use empathy strategically to build the bond of the clan, of the tribe, of the group, and therefore 
create other, the people we don't empathize with. So it's sort of interesting, like love is that capacity to connect, but it's really what we're doing, how we're using it is for its own sake, like we're sensing the absence of boundaries. And a lot of it is because we're looking at the mind from a deep place. Right? We're looking at the mind, like uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi points out, he's really just repeating the Buddhist teachings, where we're, we're a really sincere student of the mind, of the heart. And because of that integrity, we've really seen the predominance of craving. And whenever there's craving in the mind, wanting the moment to be other than it is, we see the contraction. We see the hurt, right? We're that oppressiveness of our own mind, wanting the moment to be other. So it inspires a letting go. And then as Bhikkhu Bodhi says, when we apply these truths you know, to other living beings, that contemplation nurtures the growth of goodwill and harmlessness. Because we see that predicament in everybody. So that empathetic move, we see ourselves in another's. Everybody is craving. Everybody wants the moment to be one way or another way, wants their life to be one way or another. Everybody's in a conflictual relationship with the present moment, with their lives. They're struggling like I'm struggling. You're afraid like I'm afraid. You're needy like I'm needy. I mean, maybe not in the same ways, but the underlying tightness is really the same. And that's really the birth of kindness and the wish. You know, harmlessness is the active part of compassion. I do not want to contribute to harm. There's enough harm. There's enough suffering. So when we commit to harmlessness, it's really the operational side of compassion. I do not want to add more suffering. There's enough. Kindness is that sort of, like, may you be well, and harmlessness is this sort of this active, engaged force, like, how am I complicit? How am I supporting others' contraction? What can I do? What choices can I make to alleviate suffering? And all of this arises from just getting interested in our own heart. It's really nice because it, it helps us avoid the, the big trap like when we were kids, you know, say you're sorry. You know, that was a lot of our teachers, our parents, when there was a conflict, we were supposed to, we, we kind of acted out being a generous, kind, compassionate human being. That's not good enough. Do it again. <laughs> right? Until we sort of mouthed it the right way and then we got off the hook. Okay, you can go play or something like that. And then, you know, I was a school teacher for a while, and then we got better, you know, like helping the two kids in conflict name what their needs are. Okay, what did you feel? What were you saying? Did you hear them? Can you repeat back? What was that person seeing or feeling? Okay, how about you? What did you see? What did you feel? Can you repeat that back? So they're connecting, right? This is sort of building that empathy. Oh, you're both suffering. You both got hurt doesn't mean that one person, you know, like their behavior sort of crossed 
some kind of line like he can't hit. But the beginning is like realizing we're two sensitive beings that have this deep habit to get tight, to live in an oppressive way, to get hurt, and then to double down on that same move. We meet tightness by getting tight about it. And then we relate to each other that triggers each other to get tighter. And so as a species, we're really tight. And when we're tight, we don't see clearly. And then it makes sense. Genocide and colonialism and racism and other kinds of oppressive systems make sense because we're so tight. And when we're so tight, we get desperate for relief that anything looks like a solution. Right? And we can justify really terrible things that a more relaxed and clear human being would realize, oh my God, what were we thinking? How could we feel like we needed to intern all the Japanese Americans in camps? Or how could we you know, feel like this made sense? You know, all the terrible things sending Native American children to foster schools or to um, boarding schools to sort of learn how to be white or these things that we did for decades. But in the place of fear and tightness, we do all kinds of things. I do it in my marriage. You know, when I'm tight, when I'm contracted and my mind diluted because of the tightness, I say things that later I can't believe I've said. I feel things even worse, right? That fortunately don't always come out of the mouth. So we're really capable, like when we think like, oh, those politicians or those leaders, you know, how could they be so stupid? I know how they can be so stupid. (laughs) Because I'm that stupid person. I just don't have as much power. So when I do stupid things, you know, it's more local. But if we had the karma to have a lot of responsibility, you know, or the karma to be the person who carries a gun, you know, or to be the person who, well, then we can do really stupid things that are impactful for bigger groups of people. So one of the, you know, because I'm leaving and I'm not sure how much longer Shelley's going to be continuing this topic of love. I mean, the whole point of taking these last few months and to be talking about how love is discussed in the Buddhist tradition is to really inspire us to become good students of love. And uh, it's not like we're going to be done, like graduate, we get our BA in love, and then (laughs) it's like continuing education. You keep going back. And we have places here at the center, some of you know, the first Friday of the month, there's always somebody leading a drop-in practice group on loving-kindness and all the flavors of love. And then the third, most third Fridays of the month, um, Jane Warhouse and Jean Haley lead the self-compassion drop-in group. And so that's one way to keep uh, studying. But there's so much online. And those of you who get the weekly email, Gabe Keller Flores, our um, office manager, has been linking up our Buddhist studies page on loving kindness. Lots of great articles and talks there, guided meditations there. Right where these weekly practice groups are mentioned, you'll see the link that will take you there. Or you can just go to the resources page on our website and look for Buddhist studies 
And then on the right column where all the different topics are listed, look for loving kindness. And you'll get all the resources there. And there are many other great places online where you can get resources for loving kindness, including Sharon's book on loving kindness. And it's like, you know, it's really around this refuge. Like, what is worthy of placing our heart, our trust in? And it's really this capacity to include, to be open, right? So that in terms of love, we say to be close, to be intimate, to be willing to feel, to be willing to connect. But in terms of wisdom, awareness, we say like to see things clearly, to see things as they are, to see the impermanent, impersonal, natural, unsatisfactory or ungovernable like a lot of people don't like the word translating dukkha as suffering or the unsatisfactory, but you could say the unreliable, the ungovernable, or I like more and more to say the wildness of conditions of life because it can't be governed, it can't be controlled, we can't actually create ground. So that's the wisdom side, but the love side is Yes. Right? That's what love says. Yes. And you know why we say yes? Because saying no is intolerable. We only say no because we're not awake. As soon as we start to pay more attention to life, no becomes so oppressive. Anywhere, even with the irritating person at work. Saying no, feeling like you have to throw them out of your heart is oppressive. Now, this came up in the morning talk, you know. So the question is, well, so does that mean I go to the most difficult person at work and let me give you a hug? No, because that might be really inappropriate. It's like, would you do that with a rattlesnake? <laughs> or how about a deer tick with Lyme's disease? Oh, I want you close. Here, this is the softest part of my skin and no hairs to have to negotiate, you know. <laughs> Dig in, friend. May you be happy. May you be full. May we share fluids. <laughs> we wouldn't do that, right? But like I've had experiences with deer ticks, removing them, and, and you know we had the right tool, so I didn't kill it. So then it's like, well, what do I do with this deer tick? You know, do I kill it? It's an interesting question, right? Do I intentionally kill? another living being. This goes back to empathy, right? Because it could have been like the other, you know, the kind of person that we've been conditioned through culture to think as the other. But in this case, it's a deer tick with Lyme's disease, perhaps. We don't know. So what do we do with that? And I'm not telling you what you should do with it. I'm just saying that's, you know, that 10-minute period of your life, that's a meditation, you want to be really awake. So if you do one thing, you know, you crush it and kill it, then you want to be really awake to what that sets in motion in your heart and in the world around you. What kind of world are we cultivating when we do that? I don't know, but we can find out because we can pay attention. Or if you find a place far away, <laughs> you know, put it there. What sort of world do you set in motion? What kind of heart do you set in motion? Same with any noxious, 
difficult, you know, neighbor, co-worker, aspects of your own mind. We've been talking about our mind as a committee. And some of those committee members are really hard to be around. Right? So our own dispositions that we find really shameful or embarrassing or just don't want to own. What is the relationship? We may develop tremendous skill at uprooting those tendencies, but hating being afraid of those tendencies, it doesn't help the uprooting process. Just like when we're uprooting buckthorn, some of you know it's an invasive species. We have some out at our retreat property. My One of my best friends, Denny Johnson, died uprooting the buckthorn up at our Comegrounds retreat property. The tractor we had out there flipped on him, killed him. About I don't know if people know that, but it was a big deal here at the center maybe five years ago. Um, so it's not that different uprooting the tendencies in our mind and an evasive... I mean, buckthorn is, we say invasive species. It's sort of like, you know, what we think about immigrants sometimes, you know, right? They're an evasive. So it's not invasive species. We've just decided that it's not, it's not appropriate for it to be growing there, right? Because the other species can't compete and it takes over the native species. Or the, but it's a funny concept, right? We need to sort of be aware of it. So even when there are situations that we need to get rid of pathogens, bacteria, right? We, wanna, we don't want to be arrogant about that. I mean, there's more and more news about just the fear of pathogens and how we end up creating deadly pathogens just through our neurotic fear of overuse of antibiotics and antifungal products. And then we get these super you know, bacteria and super funguses because of how we operate in the world. And so this is the thing, you know, when we run into rattlesnakes or difficult co-workers or pathogens or whatever it might be, big or small, maybe the first move is to say, yes, this is how it is. We live in a world where there's Lyme's disease and rattlesnakes and people who have grown up with a lot of fear or a lot of greed or a lot of hate, a lot of delusion, and saying no to them is, doesn't work in my heart. But that doesn't mean I'm stupid and I'm just going to sort of let them walk all over me. I can say yes, actually precisely because I can say yes, I'm closer, I can know how to handle it, like how to this is what's okay, this is not what's not okay, or this is, hey, rattlesnake, you get to be here, I get to be there. Or whatever we do to take care of all beings. And you know, there's no way to care and take care of all beings without harm being done. And this is what I meant about really letting our heart break and, and uprooting, this is an element of delusion, uprooting the idea of utopia. There's no utopia here. But what, like perfection isn't like making it so everyone's perfect, everyone's okay, nobody gets harmed. What can become perfect is the absence of delusion, the absence of idealism or denial. 
that can be developed to the nth degree. Sort of not optimism, not pessimism, but realism. Let's be real and let it break our heart where we see the horror and the beauty and we know how to keep participating. And this is really the promise of cultivating love. And we cultivate it by keeping it in mind, finding it, believing that, trusting that it's there somewhere, however faint, however you know, overgrown with the weeds of irritation or impatience. But we'll find it again if we look. And then we keep it in mind until we forget it again. And then there's that act of faith where I'm sure this heart, pretty sure, this heart is capable of love. How might I find it in this moment? What do I need to bring to mind, keep in mind in this moment to remind me that this heart is capa- has the capacity to be kind, to be good, to be compassionate? And we find it again, we keep it in mind. And then we start to live with it. Like these three wholesome intentions of generosity, kindness, and harmlessness or compassion. How much of the day can these three forces, motive forces, be dominating the mind? And then we lose it. We become an irritated, aggressive, or closed down person for a while until the suffering of that wakes us up and we start over again. How can I rediscover love? Get back on the path. So I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes to hear from a few folks. Questions you have, of course, but also just what you've been learning in this area. Reflections. What comes to mind? Yeah, please start us off right here. Hi, my name's Noah. What do you think is the significance? I think it's really interesting that the person you read from chose harmlessness as one of the things, as opposed to maybe you might... I might think of more a natural thing, helpfulness. We want to help everybody. We want to like heal the world uh, where you're at being proactive and harmlessness sounds like you're trying to make the least imprint as possible on the world around you. But I think it's kind of profound, but I can't quite put my finger on like what's the significance why he might have chose, chosen harmlessness instead of fix things yeah. kind of a thing. Because the Buddha's mind was very pragmatic. And so... Harmlessness is good because it operationalizes it a little bit more. It takes some of the idealism. Words are always going to be imperfect. So it's kind of good for you to be asking that kind of question, Noah, and and play with it in your mind, like try different words. But it's like the precepts, you know, really point to specific things around sexuality and the harm that arises around sexuality, around intoxication, around speech around taking what hasn't been given and all the oppressiveness. So the, the precepts, like when the Buddha operationalizes non-harming, he usually talks for lay people in terms of the five precepts, undertaking the training not to kill. So that means whenever we're involved in killing, it, it's sort of a little alarm goes off. Wait a minute. We made this commitment not to ki- kill, so what do I do in this situation with the deer tick? Right? not to take what hasn't actually been given to us. Well, what does that mean in terms of like economics and jobs and, you know, is this really given to me? And what does it mean that it's been given to me at whose expense? Is everybody on board with me having this much money? 
right? Like this, this share of the resources on the planet, undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct, right? So how might power, how might patriarchy be playing out in the sexual relationship I have with this person or whatever? It's any kind of manip- manipulative behavior, you know, regardless of our gender orientation or how we understand sex. Undertaking the training to refrain from speech that is untrue, speech that is overly harsh, like where we're using power, the power of speech, like kids stamping around or screaming, you know, they they can get intoxicated with loudness even. Or idle speech, speech that doesn't need to be spoken, isn't helping anybody, isn't informing anything. Or speech used as a weapon. So that's the fourth. And undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind. The Buddha said, you know, intoxication isn't inherently unskillful. It just increases the probability of unskillful action, right? So that's the problem with intoxication. There's nothing inherently wrong with being high. It's just easier to do stupid things that cause harm. So why would we increase the probability? because we think it doesn't matter. But most of us have stories that it matters, where we either did something because we were intoxicated, stupid, or we were really close. I was really close once, where I was um, a little intoxicated, and I could have done something really stupid, caused harm. And, you know, just a matter of, you know, chance. It could have gone this way or it could have gone that way. And I bet most of us have something like that in our lives. Yeah. Thanks, Noah. We need to leave it here. Unless, why don't you just make it quick? Wait for the mic, though, so we can hear you. My name is Ria, and I was just going to share a quick thought that I had when we were talking about the deer tick. Um, when I was in Florida over winter break, I was at the beach one day, a different beach from where I was staying, and there were all these uh, sand dollars that were starting to wash up, but when I would pick them up, they were still alive, so I just felt like it wasn't right to take them, and I felt like better with the decision than what I would have felt if I took them with me, and then the next day, um, at right where we were staying at the beach, there was a bunch washed up that were already gone, and so then I felt like that was kind of like a say, or like a sign that yeah. it was the right choice. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that we could imagine before we started to sensitize our heart. We, it's amazing what we justify. I mean, think of our, some of us as kids with our magnifying glasses and other stuff that we did. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe pass the mic back to Patricia. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words, just maybe 30 seconds of silence to end our time. And we can resolve in our own way to become good students of love. Thanks, everyone.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.